0: All right, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Hudson Institute. My name is Jeff Anderson, I'm a senior fellow here. I'll be moderating the event. John Weicher has written this fine report we'll be talking about, and Diana furchgott roth has joined us to offer her thoughts as well. Um, we uh, Let me quickly uh, read, give you a sense of, of who these folks are up here. J- John uh, is uh, Hudson's director of uh, Center for Housing and Financial Markets. He's author of the report, The Distribution of Wealth in America, which many of you have probably grabbed outside there. From 2001 to 2005, he served as Assistant Secretary for Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner at HUD, with responsibility for 3,400 people on his staff. Um, previously, he served as Assistant Secretary for Policy Development and Research at HUD from 1989 to 93, and as Chief Economist at HUD and OMB in the 70s and 80s. Diana furchgott roth is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and director of Economics 21. She's, uh, from, from 2003 to 2005, she was chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor. From 2001 to two, she was chief of staff of President George W. Bush's Council of Economic Advisors. So uh, this is a very interesting report, I think, about the fate of uh, the median American, the, the typical American in our society, and how their wealth has uh, changed in recent years. Uh, as as John writes in his uh, recent Forbes piece, um, most of us have good reason to think the country is going in the wrong direction. The wealth of middle-class families collapsed during the Great Recession, and it hasn't improved since then. Mm-hmm. So we'll start on that optimistic note. <laughs> uh, Put a little meat on the bones there. In two thousand seven, the typical family's wealth was uh, one hundred forty thousand dollars, and uh, by two thousand thirteen, it had dropped to eighty three thousand dollars. From one hundred forty to eighty three in a span of six years. Um, obviously, not all is doom and gloom. But uh, <laughs> John, let me, with that uh, introduction, let me just hand it off to you and let you give a fuller sense of of the work you've done on this.
1: Okay. Um, Good enough. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. And I must say it's a great pleasure for me to have Diana here today. We were colleagues here at Hudson, and we used to get together and talk about things like this. Uh, We were the only economists in the place, and we became extremely good friends uh, as a result. Um, Now, when people talk about wealth, uh, mostly we talk about the richest people. How much of our total wealth they have, and they have a lot. They have a large share of it. Uh, sometimes we talk about the poorest people and how little they have, um, which is also interesting. But I'm going to be talking about the people in the middle. Uh, this is these are people that are often overlooked. There is no special issue of Forbes magazine about the middle 400 families in the United States. Uh, but the experience of of uh, the people in the middle is worth some attention. It's at least as gloomy as Jeff was uh, saying. Now, uh, in talking about the middle 10% of us, this is the middle 10% in terms of the wealth distribution, not the middle 10% in terms of the income distribution. People between the 45th and the 55th (laughs) percentile of the wealth uh, distribution. Talk a little bit later about exactly what that range is. Uh, the data that I've been using comes from the survey of consumer finances which has been conducted by the Fed every three years. The latest available survey is for 2013 which is why the study stops at 2013. Uh, they spent the last half of the last year conducting the 2016 survey and the, that data will become available uh, later this year. It's a very detailed survey. Uh, If you want to know how many people in America collect stamps, uh, it's in there. Uh, You have to look, but it's in there. And it's very useful to have, even apart from such things as how many of us are stamp or coin collectors. Uh, I'm using a PowerPoint because I think, I'm gonna be talking about some specifics and I think it's useful to have the numbers on the screen. Uh, Otherwise, it's very easy to get confused. Uh, So with that, Let me uh, start in. Let me try to start in. Okay, let's press the right button. Uh, Let me start with a little bit, an explanation of what's wealth and what's income. And I apologize to the people here who don't need to be told this, who know this to begin with. Uh, I have it because fairly often uh, I've had professional economists ask me for my papers on the distribution of income. I have never in 50 years as an economist written a paper about the distribution of income. I have written more than half a dozen about the distribution of wealth, uh, but people, if my fellow economists can't keep straight this straight, uh, why do I expect an audience of a broader group uh, to be uh, keeping it straight? Um, wealth is a stock. It is what you own, minus what you owe at a particular point in time. What you own minus what you owe at 10 minutes of one on January 31st, 2017. Or where you were on New Year's Day. Or where you were when your last kid finished college. Or some some specific uh, date. Or when your first kid starts college. Um, the uh, income is a flow how much did you receive last week last month last year uh, some some period of time now the largest category of income is you're not you won't be surprised is wages and salaries uh, it's two-thirds of the total income that we received uh, typically over the whole last 30 years and it didn't doesn't vary that much from one to the one uh, year to the next. Um, uh, there is no corresponding wealth component uh, to, to wages and salaries. There's a, if you line them up next to each other, there would be a zero in that column. And the same is true when you look at uh, the largest category of wealth. That consists of the homes we own, value of the house minus the mortgage, the equity we have in their home, And there's no corresponding income category. Now, if you you own your house and you use part of it as an office, then you may have some income related to the house. Or if you rent out a spare bedroom, you may have some income related to it. But by that time, you're not talking about simply an owner-occupied house. You're talking about a house that is serving multiple purposes. So with that, This is some basic data about the wealth of American families in the United States over the last 30 years. And as you can see, the total wealth that we had starts in 1983 at $24 trillion. And this is right after the second worst recession that we had uh, in the post-war period, the recession of 81-82. And at that point, uh, the average we- uh, wealth per household was 280000 or thereabouts, and the wealth of the typical family, the family in the middle, was just over uh, $80,000. Now, these are all in 2013 dollars, so nobody has to uh, make adjustments uh, to, to get them into the same terms. Uh, the Fed, bless their heart, publishes a set of data, <coughs> all of it is... Uh, in 2013, dollars, which made my life, my job, has made my job a lot, uh, a lot easier. Uh, now we had a sharp recovery from 83 to 89, uh, a mild recession between ni- in 1991 and a mild drop in total net worth and, and, uh, average net worth and the median came back down to where it had been in 1983. And then we started a 15 year boom, uh, in the course of which Uh, The total wealth in society more than doubled. The wealth of the typical family doubled. The wealth of the average family doubled. Uh, The the wealth of the family in the middle rose by about two-thirds. Substantial uh, gains all the way around. And then we have the Great Recession uh, and the weak recovery. And the total wealth in the United States is down by about 10%. The average is down by about 15%. The median, the family in the middle, is down by 40%. And, that, and they lost that 40% in the first three years, and then there's a little bit more of a loss uh, for good measure. So with, so what, what do we own? What is our wealth? Well, the typical young family, which is not very well represented in this room. Uh, when you start out, uh, form your form your own household, go into the labor force, you typically start out with two assets. You have a checking account and you own a car. Uh, in your late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, you're likely to pick up a couple more assets. You're likely to buy a home and you're likely to start a retirement account. And those are the assets that most people have for most of their lives, and they remain, throughout people's working lives, the uh, the most important uh, uh, share. Um, these four assets in 1983 uh, added up to $115,000 on average they were 40% of our wealth. Since then, they've gone up to be almost 50% of our wealth, and that is because of the increasing importance of retirement accounts. In 1983, the law had just passed, which made uh, IRAs generally available, including to people who had pensions from their jobs uh, to begin with. Uh, Now, these are not the only assets we have, Um, 10% of us or so own a small business, 20% of us own rental property, 10% own commercial real estate, 5 to 10% have a vacation home, Uh, 10% of us own mutual funds, 10 to 15% of us own stock apart from our retirement account, Uh, 20% of us have cash value life insurance, Uh, and there are other assets that are less important. But the major four assets remain the major four assets throughout your life, unless you're really rich, in a millionaire, a multimillionaire, uh, and and on up. Okay. Uh, A little bit about who the families are in the middle. Here you see the wealth range for the for the ten percent of families in the middle. It was. From 105,000 to 175,000 in 2007, and it dropped uh, by about uh, almost half in uh, by 2013. Uh, What happened to wealth happened to a slightly lesser extent with income. Uh, The median income for these families dropped from 54,000 to about 46,000 in the course of uh, the Great Recession and the weak uh, recovery, so it was not a great time for almost anybody. Um, the median age of the families in the middle uh, is in the middle of the is middle age, uh, a little younger than fifty, a little older than fifty. Uh, the typical family in the middle is a married couple, and if they're a married couple, typically they have children children still in the home. A little bit more about them. Uh, Here I'm talking about the heads of households because that's the uh, only way I get comparison data from the Census Bureau. Uh, 30% of the families in the middle had at least a college degree according to the Survey of Consumer Finances. That's compared to 33% of all U.S. households, and this is in 2013. the uh, racial and ethnic composition of the families in the middle is not very different than uh, for the fam- uh, families as a whole. About three quarters of of, us are, of them are white. About a quarter of them are members of minority groups, and we and I don't have uh, other races here, which is the other group that the Survey of Consumer Finances had has. Uh, I think these are worth keeping in mind. Because we heard a lot over the last several months about uh, uh, white men without a college education, and it's—I want—I want want to make clear that talking here about a somewhat different group. Uh, We are the families in the middle are about as well educated as all the rest of us, and uh, they are about the same in race and ethnicity as the rest of us. Um So, what, uh, what do these families have looking at this in a little more detail? And you can see that uh, families in the, fewer of the families in the middle owned their own home in 2013 compared to 2007. Uh, and a really dramatic change. For the families which owned a home in 2007 and in 2013, they lost nearly half the equity in their home in those six years. That is a lot. Uh, Again, most of these families had uh, an IRA or a 401k in 2007. That percentage dropped rather uh, noticeably from 56% to 47%. The median value didn't change very much, but clearly there was less uh, less Invested by families in the middle in their own retirement. Uh, 10% of, this, of them owned a small business in 2007 uh, with a value of about $50,000. Uh, by 2013, 7% owned a small business and they got the same uh, resu- the same thing happened to them that happened to the homeowners. The value of their business dropped almost by half. Uh, this has not been a great time uh, for these people. Uh, the families in the middle lost 40% of their wealth in three years and haven't gotten any of it back. Just went the wrong way, sorry. Uh, uh, broadening the, the, the what we're looking at a little bit, uh, This is based on four different groups in the society. The richest 10% who have about $3 million and up. The well-to-do who are people between $375,000 and $500,000. The families in the middle that we've been talking about. And the families who just barely have positive net worth. The range here is between about $10,000 in net worth up to $25,000. And you can see from this that uh, the richer the family was in 2007, the more their wealth dropped in the next six years uh, in, in dollars. Uh, 500,000 500, for the richest 10% on down to $8,000 for the people who have very little. Uh, and if I filled in the whole table by 10% groups, by deciles, uh, you would see a steady uh, and a monotonic decline. Uh, but there's another way of looking at this too. The richer the family was in 2007, the smaller the percentage drop in their wealth was. Uh, the richest 10 percent lost 11 percent of their net worth. Uh, certainly not an enjoyable outcome for them, but not disastrous. Uh, the well-to-do people lost about a quarter. Families in the middle, as we've been talking about, lost about 40%. And the people at the bottom, or near the bottom, who didn't have much to begin with, lost almost half of what they had. Now, with that situation, one consequence is that the distribution of wealth became noticeably more unequal between 2007 and 2013. In 2007, the richest owned 71% of the total wealth of all American households. Six years later, they owned 75% of the total wealth of American households. And that is the most unequal distribution, the most concentrated wealth uh, holdings that we've had in this country since at least 1983. Uh, It has not been a good time. And I think all this helps to explain the results of the uh, election, at least a little bit. Uh, I don't want to overstress this, but uh, um, here is a standard poll question asked by nearly all the major pollsters from time to time. Uh, How are we doing, are we going in the right direction, are we on the wrong track? And, this chart is from Real Clear Politics and shows what ha- what the responses were over the last eight years. They just report the last eight years, so uh, uh, we no longer have, from that source at least, 2008 and earlier years. And you will see that we have consistently said, by substantial margins, that we're on the wrong track. There's only one day in this where it's a 50-50 vote. Uh, that. Uh, line at the bottom, near the uh, left-hand uh, margin. Of, on June, on, on uh, June 1st of 2009, we split 45.8%, we're in the right direction, 45.8% we're on the wrong track. Usually, it's been at least two to one, we're on the wrong track. Uh, it's been as one-sided as four to one, uh, 78% wrong track, 19% right direction five years ago. 75% right, wrong direction, wrong track, five, 15, 17% uh, right direction uh, three years ago. Not, uh, we are aware that things are going wrong. I, now, I looked at this yesterday as well. And, sorry, one more. This, this was yesterday's results, 58% wrong to 32% right, uh, and then if you go back to January 30th of the year before, and the year before, and the year before, and the year before, the year before you see that typically uh, 60, 60% of us have said we're on the wrong track. 30-32% of us has said we're going in we're going in the right direction. Uh, there's a little bit of a blip uh, since the election, but not not a large one. So. With all that, uh, we were talking beforehand, uh, the economy seems to be improving. Uh, At least uh, we can hope so, and I think there's some reason for it. But most of us have a long way to go before we can catch up to where we were not that many years ago. Thank you very much. Do you want the
2: slide?
0: John, can I ask you a quick question before I hand it over to Diana? The slide you had shows the share of wealth that uh, comes from those four assets, Mm -hmm. checking cars, housing, and retirement accounts. Do you have a sense uh, offhand of of how much higher that number would be for the median American? Because I assume for the median American, those four assets are even more important than for the average American.
1: Yeah. uh, uh, Basically... The short answer is I can't tell you that right offhand, but basically for almost everybody from the people uh, that we list, I listed as barely positive net worth, they're the most important four for them, about 85 to 90%. Okay. They're not much less than that when you get as high as the uh, people who I described as well-to-do who are between the 70th and 80, 80th percent of the wealth uh, distribution, and for people who are merely millionaires, it's a little less than that. But it's still these are what these are the things they own, and they may they probably own something else, but also they have a much uh, richer uh, IRA and a much bigger house.
0: It's a ballpark for the median American, probably eighty to ninety percent, somewhere in there. It sounds like something like that. Yeah. Thank you, Diana.
3: Well, thank you very much for inviting me to comment on this paper. Uh, For many years, I was able to say, when asked about wealth inequality, I was able to refer to the magnificent series of papers that John Weicker has written and say, income inequality might have changed, but wealth inequality has not changed. You know, case closed, because John has written a series of papers every five or six years coming to the same result. This is the first paper where there's a difference, so I'm going to have to learn another line. I'm going to have to say, yes, wealth inequality has also changed. I found particularly interesting your slide about 1992 and the decline in wealth in 1992. Because in 1992, actually, GDP growth was turned out to be relatively strong. It was revised uh, the next year up to about 3%. 1992 was a campaign year. I was in the White House. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of complaints. Uh, people were not feeling very well off. Turns out GDP was growing, but from John's data, we can see that the level of wealth had gone down. So there were real reasons for their dissatisfaction and for the reason uh, that George H.W. Bush lost the election. In fact, if you look at eight of the past nine elections, now it's nine out of the past ten. If GDP growth is lower in uh, the year of the election than the prior year, then the party out of power won. The one exception was 1992. And uh, this is uh, somewhat explained uh, by John's wealth series. Yes, GDP was not lower, but it looks like Wealth had not recovered from uh, the recession before. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, uh, what I'd like to do is talk about some proposed solutions because John identified uh, four problems, Uh, uh, housing, student debt, uh, the stock market, and also the general state of the economy. So I would like to just propose uh, just a few solutions for each of these so that the next administration uh, can keep wealth rising and hopefully uh, on a more even keel in the future and set examples uh, for future administrations. For housing... It seems as though uh, there is a need to put in place measures to stop these housing uh, bubbles, and people have talked about this extensively in the past, (laughs) but nothing has been done about it. The key problem is the government subsidization of mortgage risk and the exposures of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. The subsidization of housing finance which the United States has a lot more of than many other countries, is just a major threat to the stability of the financial system. And it uh, is in many ways not the most effective way of promoting access to housing. Well, this has come about because there are very powerful political interests such as ACORN in the urban areas that want real estate lending to be sponsored by the government. There's a large urban populist movement that wants the government to subsidize housing lending. They also want to subsidize these vacation homes, although the subsidy of vacation homes has declined over the past uh, 10 to 15 years. So when you have these subsidies, then housing value and housing equity is more likely to be hit in a downturn. And this is something that Dodd-Frank has not solved. Uh, There are many small banks that are invested in housing, and the too-big-to-fail solutions uh, have not addressed the problems of these small banks and the extent to which they are liable in the case of a downturn. Uh, we saw before the recession uh, mortgage leverage rates skyrocketing. We saw the share of mortgages requiring a down payment of 3% or even less went from zero in the mid-90s to about 40% just prior to the crisis. Well, some solutions are uh, I would recommend phasing out Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac and uh, uh, the losses that Fannie and Freddie has are extraordinarily high right now, and we need to be dealing with those losses by phasing out gradually these entities. We also need to phase in a movement from the 3% down payment to a 20% minimum down payment requirement. A third policy that might make sense if we want to help people uh, in the housing area is to provide assistance to the cost of locking in longer-term interest rates for low-income individuals because they are potentially more susceptible to the increase in uh, a flexible rate mortgage such as a five or a seven or a three-year arm. A fourth policy idea would be, instead of subsidizing housing through the lending, is to subsidize it through down payments. And this has been tried in Australia, where there's a down payment assistance program. Every Australian qualifies for a $7,000 first-time home buyer subsidy, which increases their down payment, reduces their leverage, and makes their home more affordable. And this has a stabilizing effect on leverage ratios and creates a real stake for people in their homes and in their communities. Well, let's move on to student debt. Uh, You all have the paper in front of you, and there are some very interesting tables on how student debt has ballooned and has lowered the value of wealth. If you look at the tables, you can see that people in high, increasingly higher ages over time owe more uh, student loans. And we need to try to, again, phase out the federal government from the student loan business because they just give whatever student loan, generally, people ask for. They don't ask about people's ability to repay. If I'm a C student, and I'm going to uh, a local university, and I want to major in women's studies, uh, they will fund, they will give me basically as much loan as I ask for, even if I have no ability, or my parents have no ability with the Parent PLUS loan to repay this loan. And C students occasionally uh, drop out in the middle Few of them finish in four years. So many of them are stuck with the level of debt and without any degree to pay it off. Now, if you're a bank and you're responsible for getting back the money that you lend, you're not going to lend a C student $100,000 to major in some subject where they won't be able to get a job afterwards. You will ask more pertinent questions. You know, what are you going to major in? How much are you going to borrow? What were your grades in high school? The federal government in general does not ask any of these questions. Uh, Instead, many, many students are defaulting on these loans. Plus we've put in place partial repayment programs where after 10 years the rest of the debt just vanishes, uh, which of course is helpful when it comes to equity and wealth but it's not helpful when it comes to the federal government's balance sheet and its ability to help more students who really do need these loans. Another thing we should do is just completely end these federal loans for graduate school. You can have people borrowing money uh, supported by the federal government for law school, uh, business school, medical school. Uh, These are loans that they should get through the private sector Uh, It's one thing to say that the federal government should subsidize a BA. Quite another thing to say it should subsidize a medical degree and a law degree, which are supposed to be very serious investments in human capital that result in a large flow afterwards. Well, Let's move on to the stock market. Uh, John's tables showed uh, IRAs, uh, 401ks, the ups and downs, And we need to take a good look at the Federal Reserve at its dual mandate. There's a new administration coming in, uh, a new Congress. They might want to look at the dual objectives of full employment and price stability and maybe just stick to price stability, move to something like a Taylor Rule, uh, which is basically 2% growth above the target rate of inflation, The Fed these days is taking 2% as their target rate of inflation. And by prescribing adjustments to the funds rate uh, when positive or negative output gaps appear, the Taylor Rule recognizes that the Fed can pursue and achieve modest counter-cyclical objectives, smoothing out short-run fluctuations in real variables even while stabilizing prices in the long run. The problem with uh, the Fed's policies over the past eight years is that it has resulted in a big run-up in stock market values that can then collapse as a bubble, just as the bubble popped in terms of the housing market in 2008 and 9 and thereafter. So if the Fed, having kept rates close to zero for so long, uh, now raises them, it's very possible that there will be an adjustment in terms of stock market values and people's wealth is going to be negatively uh, affected in terms of their investments in their IRAs and their employer pension plans. Uh, We can also see some of this spillover in terms of property because if you cannot get, if you're retired, and you need a rate of return on your assets. And you cannot get this through a savings account, through a typical (laughs) T-bill account. You're going to go into the stock market and take on uh, a larger amount of risk than you are comfortable with just for the purposes, because you need that return to live on. Further, you might decide to invest in property, take a lump sum out of your IRA that really should have been in T-bills, uh, put it in maybe some rental property so that you can get rent as a source of income to live on. And this is highly distortionary in terms of uh, the zero Federal Reserve rates right now. We have to hope that the Fed is going to raise rates gradually to a more normal historical level. Finally, uh, what we really need to do is have a higher rate of economic growth so that people can be replenishing uh, their assets. They uh, get more wage and salary income, which can partially go towards savings. We need lower tax rates, a better regulatory policy. It makes no sense for us to have the highest corporate income tax in the world at 39%, including federal and state taxes when the OECD average is 20%, when the UK is 20% and planning to go down to 17% in 2020. This would result in increased funds coming back into the country and making more job opportunities. Earnings rise uh, through mobility. People need the opportunity not just to get in the job market Uh, but also to rise through the job market, and we need additional investment from all over the world for that. We have the lowest labor force participation rate since the 1970s. Our labor force participation rate at about 67% is, sorry, it's about uh, 62.7 now, is equal to 1978 levels, and this is before the decade where millions of women merged into the labor market. We need to provide more opportunities, and one of those ways is fundamental tax reform, both on the corporate and the individual level. And we also have to hope for regulatory reform that will make it easier for businesses uh, to grow and expand and be created in the United States. And I hope that this is uh, the last uh, paper that John writes where he says wealth inequality has increased and that the next paper he writes, we will be back to trend, and we can say, with the exception of the paper that John brought out in 2017, wealth inequality is about the same. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Diana. I just want to make sure this may not be necessary, but just to be on the safe side, I want to make sure everybody's clear on the distinction here between when John's talking about wealth versus income. He writes on page uh, five of his of his uh, publication that wealth is the value of the total assets one owns minus the total amount of debts. Wealth is synonymous with net worth. Income is the money that a household receives over a given period of time. So basically, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but basically wealth is what you own, Mm -hmm. income is what you earn. They're not necessarily one and the same at all. I mean, you can imagine someone who has phenomenal wealth and no income stream, Mm -hmm. uh, and you can have someone else who has – uh, a great deal of income stream, but up until that point had accumulated no wealth.
3: Mm-hmm. All those widows, for example, living on the Upper East Side, have very little income but large amounts of wealth.
1: Mm-hmm. That you can see in, when you look at the uh, uh, you look at the relationship between uh, wealth over time and uh, over as you get older and income as you get older, and when you're hitting the retirement age, your income drops. Okay. But your wealth does not. Your wealth tends to go up more for a few years after you've stopped working. And then uh, you begin to draw it down in, and through, the rest of your, uh, through the rest of your life. Uh, you can be asset poor and income rich or income poor and asset rich, as well as having, having a balance. And uh, the younger people will tend to have uh, decent income relatively speaking, but not much in the way of assets. And the older people will have decent assets by and large, but not uh, much coming in uh, in the way of income, and probably none of it, or almost none of it, coming in from labor labor income. So J-
0: John had highlighted a couple of, thi- couple of things in his uh, publication I thought were worth mentioning, perhaps just as a matter of general interest. That uh, So the median American's wealth, uh, according to John's research, has basically flatlined since 1983. So for 30-year spans, since this just goes to 2013, median American wealth has not really risen or fallen. I mean, it's moved, but the net result is flat. It's actually down since shortly after Ronald Reagan left office in 1989. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, kind of contrary to, I think, the general perception of things, wealth inequality did not increase Between nineteen eighty-three and nineteen ninety-two, so from the basically the start of the Reagan recovery through the first Bush presidency, wealth inequality did not increase. Um, but it did increase, more wealth inequality from two thousand seven to thirteen and as well as from twenty ten to thirteen during the Obama recovery, which is perhaps striking. That that's not I think I suspect if you asked people that question, they would have answered in the reverse. Um, income, uh, the income of the median American has also not been great in recent years but, uh, but it at least has risen since uh, 1983 so the wealth numbers are even a little bit worse than the income numbers I guess John I'll start off by asking you um, why is it that uh, wealth inequality has increased uh, in the Obama years when it did not increase in the Reagan years. Um, And was there anything that uh, Obama could have done about that to to prevent that result or um, anything else you want to say about that?
1: Well, they tried. Um, There were, if if you're a housing uh, specialist, there were all these programs to try to keep people who uh, uh, owned their own home but did not have much equity and did not have much income. Try to keep them in their home. We had—I can't remember what they were—but there was Hamp and there was Harp One and Harp Two, and they kept trying to find some way of of uh, getting uh, uh, resources back into the housing market and also keeping people from losing uh, losing their homes. That uh, did not work very well. Uh, efforts in the last year of the Bush administration did not work very well, and it. The housing market got uh, overtaken in the in the public uh, uh, impression, I think, by uh, what had been happening in the stock market, which went down a lot from 2007 to about 2009, and then bounced back. Uh, And so, if you can, uh, when I first started looking at this, uh, it looked as if. There was no stock market collapse in 2008-9, for that matter, uh, because of the three-year cycle on the uh, Survey of Consumer Finances. You missed the dot-com bubble and the dot-com bust. It doesn't. It just happens that the timing of the uh, surveys was not the same as the timing of, of the market. And I think what's necessary here. I think Diana has some good, good. Uh, policy uh, recommendations here. But I think it's going to take a, a significantly stronger economy to get people uh, into a position to buy their first home and to uh, uh, go, on, go on from there. It's, it's been very tough. If you look at the real estate press uh, or if you listen to some of the ads on the radio as you're driving into work, you hear a lot about how low interest rates are, and they certainly are low ba- compared to any interest rate that I've ever paid uh, on a mortgage, uh, but there is not the market on the borrower's side for 4% loans in substantial uh, in substantial volume. People, people, I think, are scared I think lenders are scared that they may be making a misjudgment in the view of the uh, financial regulators, looking look, with the benefit of hindsight, telling them that they, they did the wrong things. Right. And I think you've got to. You've. It's. It's going to take a while for that to. Uh, for that to come back.
3: Well, under Dodd Frank, uh, a lender has to be sure that a borrower can repay the amount. And Ben Bernanke famously could not refinance his house after he left the Fed because he didn't, as chairman of the Fed, when he resigned, he didn't have a job and so he couldn't refinance because the bank could not prove that he could repay his mortgage. So some of these regulations just don't make sense and have stopped lending. I think another part is that the price of homes has just got so high that even with a zero, uh, a um, four, three to 4% mortgage, it's not affordable for a lot of young families?
1: I think uh, the price changes have been uh, regional more than more than national. Uh, speaking as the uh, spouse of someone who inherited a condo on the Ohio River just across from Cincinnati, just across from the ballparks uh, for the uh, Reds and the Bengals, uh, it took... Three years to clear to get that condo sold, and we were not trying to keep it for any purpose whatsoever. Mm. It took it took a long time. Mm. A lot of a lot of places, the, the the housing market did not improve because there simply was not the underlying economy.
0: And even nationally, isn't it true that the housing housing prices have barely now gotten above where they were in two thousand and seven? Yeah, yeah. Just a little bit. A little bit about how this. Uh, survey works that John's been relying on here. It says, uh, he writes that the uh, survey r- respondents are chosen randomly from the population. Uh, some others are selected because they're households with high wealth. They need to make sure they have a representative sample of that. Each household is asked several hundred questions about its assets and its debts, also about its demographics and other economic attributes. The typical interview lasts about 90 minutes, but some are substantially more than three hours. So... My question is, how does one avoid these surveys?
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> or, well, how do you know they're right? How do you know people give the right answers to them?
1: Uh, well, that, I think, is a subversive question, and I will uh, trust uh, the people at the, Fred, the Fed to uh, be doing, uh, doing the job. Uh, I hope they are, certainly. now um, I think uh, the problem... You, you get into here, is that uh, people, the people who can answer the survey quickly are the people who say no to nearly everything. Do you own your home? No, okay. Uh, do you want a vacation home? No. There go a whole bunch of questions. Uh, uh, and so on through, what about, do you own any stocks? No. And then you get to the people who are wealthy, and that is, uh, you're going to get a lot of yeses, but, you're, but there's going to be a whole bank of questions after that that you have to uh, uh, that you have to answer. And uh, the Fed folks start every paper they publish, about every survey, with thanks to the people who responded, and they and their it's and their their thanks are. Uh, somewhat effusive and I'm sure completely sincere it was very nice of people to do it but you have to trust that the people are taking it uh, seriously and you do get some non responses people who don't want to answer the questions my wife would do it she loves this stuff okay mm-hmm. yeah
3: well well, well <laughs> you ever show
1: up in the surface
3: well one might assume that At least, since it's a series, uh, then one can trust trust the changes from it, that if there's any errors, then they're the same ones over time, and so one can trust the trend. But wouldn't you think that it would be biased downwards because people would tend to underestimate what they own?
1: Well, I I think um, one of the things they do is, uh, judging from what they've said about this, is the people they are interviewing have to stop the interview and go and look things up.
3: But what about, for example, how much is your grand piano worth?
1: When we had a grand piano...
3: Or how much is that painting worth? The things that don't change in the market very often.
1: Well, I think if you've got something that has value, uh, you are likely to have some idea what it's what it's worth mm-hmm. uh, in that, in that uh, situation. They ask a lot of questions, right, about
0: what you have, like, Oh, yes. You said stamp collections. Yes. and Coin collection,
1: oriental rugs.
0: Uh, so how would you value?
3: Things. know how to value a stamp collection or a coin
1: collection? You can look it up. Okay. There, are, there, are, there are catalogs. Will uh, tell you what the.
3: Uh, but each individual stamp is worth. So you have to go and see what this. Yeah. Well, 1981 yes. first issue, first. Yes. First day cover from London is worth. Well.
1: Or from uh, uh, Paraguay. Or from uh, Tahiti, and, it, and it, uh, it goes on like that. But um, there, there are markets there.
0: We were talking earlier, John and I, and I, and I was asking how the how to how do they get the answer of what someone's home is worth, which is a major factor in, in evaluating somebody's wealth. And the survey relies on the answer that people give under the assumption that. And and, and John says, jump in if you want to, hear John. But that that this tends to be pretty accurate what pe- the answer people get. That people know what their house is worth. They know what their neighbors have sold their house for. They know they keep pretty close tabs on this kind of thing. That's not to say it's an exact figure, but that it seems to be uh, mm-hmm. perhaps more reliable than when you go on to like Zillow.com or something and look at their estimates which never seem to be all that However, accurate
4: most real estate agents they tell you the average person to overestimates
1: their value slightly. Like, uh, mm-hmm. But I think that, I think uh, uh, I think nonetheless, people have some basis for ju- for keeping track, for judging what their house uh, is worth. And uh, since it's your biggest asset, it's probably worth spending a little time to make sure that you have some idea. I might say that Zillow thinks our house is far more than I know it's worth, so I wouldn't rely on them uh, very much uh, at all. On the other hand, for my next door neighbor, they just took the price. That they paid for the house three years
5: ago, so <laughs> that's um, I don't I don't think well, those things
0: are. Well, right.
3: I know the state of Maryland, for its tax assessment purposes, thinks my house is far more worth far more than it actually is. <laughs>
0: I, I I like John's focus. I have to applaud his focus on the median American. Um, the you know if you take everybody in America, hundred and sixty five million on this side, hundred sixty five million on this side, or whatever the number is these days, the one right in the middle. Uh, I think there's strikingly little emphasis on the median American when we talk about policy, um, and and you'd think it would be the opposite, right? That the that's where the votes are. So you think that there would be a natural desire to uh, pay too much attention to the median American at the expense of everyone else. But it seems to have been sort of the opposite. I mean, I look at uh, like tax plans that are out there right now, and. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Not to take away from what John's, uh, to focus on John's work here, but I, if anyone's interested, I, I've put out a tax plan that is focused on the media in America and that's out there in the other room. But um, you look at, like, the Democrats tend to talk about the top 1%, and they tend to talk about uh, the poor, uh, and, and to some degree, the Republicans tend to follow suit. Like, the, I was really struck by the, uh, the House Republican tax plan, which was uh, recently released, or a blueprint for it. Um, this spring I believe <laughs> it uh it sort of reads like a plan that's designed to be beneficial for people kind of at the bottom where more and more people would be given uh, money at tax time like instead of paying income tax they actually tax day is payday and the number of people for whom that would, is true would, would increase and then the and then the very the, the wealthiest would do well under the plan very well um, but the median American is sort of uh doesn't seem to be the focus. And in particular, there's a provision in the uh well, the House Republican plan would be a would, would provide would make get so there's huge tax increases for a lot of middle class homeowners. Uh because while they keep the mortgage interest deduction, they take away everything around it that makes it worthwhile, like the personal exemption. Uh so uh you know, you'd have a lot of middle class homeowners that would have two, three, four, $5,000 increases in their tax bill. And it's just, it's a surprising thing to me. Um, So I guess I wanted to ask just uh, either of you about this and and this sort of, I think, strange phenomenon of not paying much attention to the, or as much attention as I would expect policymakers to pay to the median American. Same could perhaps be said about uh, Obamacare alternatives.
3: Sometimes it's because it's difficult to calculate, and John has just done an excellent job of doing these calculations. So it's pretty easy to, for example, uh, get the top 10% or the bottom 10%. The median is sometimes harder to calculate, or it's hard, and it's easier to get the average than it is to get the median for many of these things.
1: I think um, uh, you know, most of us have no particularly clear idea where we were. 20 years ago or 30 years ago if we were in fact the head of our own household and not uh, living in our parents household you just don't you just don't keep track of things very well it's, it's too much trouble you don't make you don't, we don't make inflation adjustments routinely in our, on a day-to-day basis in our lives not even if we're uh, we're economists and I think therefore people tend to lose track themselves of how well they're doing over a long period of time I could not tell you, what our net worth was 30 years ago.
0: But as you've noted, people seem to have at least a vague sense that they're not happy with how well they're doing with the surveys of whether the country's on the right track or not. Yeah.
1: And and, and uh, what's happened in those six years from 2007 to 2013, you've probably lived through them and you probably have a pretty vivid memory of what happened to you during those, uh, during those six years. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. Uh, Three years, uh, with this year's survey, I, I'm sort of afraid that Diana's gonna be disappointed and I will have to write another paper about the continuing decline in the wealth of the, of the, of the families in the middle through 2016. Absolutely I not, hope that's John. the last one.
3: Donald Trump is gonna make America great again and I'm sure that the wealth is gonna go up commensurately.
1: But it's hard for him to make a difference in what people had in 2016.
3: Yes, that's true, yeah.
1: Uh, I don't think the market, although the stock market
3: yeah. one. You'll have to do one for the next three years after. Yeah.
0: I mean, I would, I would think the fate of the median American is important in terms of just the general health of the, of, of mm-hmm. our, of our polity. That the if, uh, if, if the typical American uh, believes they're they're doing well and believes in the system, it's going <laughs> to go a long way toward uh, either a mm-hmm. feeling of public happiness or dissatisfaction, as the case may be, with, with all of um, our whole structure. Mm-hmm. Let me. Uh, so, a question. Let me let me ask. I'll get to the questions in one second. There's one more uh, one more question I wanted to ask here is the uh, um, John. You, you make the observation that uh, in the uh, let me let me quote you directly here that in the in the '70s when inflation was running rampant um, among assets which offered some protection against inflation, a home was the easiest for most households to buy. And this is kind of a offbeat question, but I'm, I'm curious whether the two of you think that. Is, is inflation actually good for the median American in terms of accumulating wealth? And I ask this because it seems to me that inflation is one of the uh, better guarantees of, like, increased value of your house. And since houses are uh, are, are a key part of what uh, the median American owns as wealth, I mean, what they owe the bank doesn't change. So with inflation, they can do quite well. My parents bought a house in Southern California and the... Mid 70s, the, at the height of the, and then over the next few years, the height of the Carter inflation, the house went up tremendously, and they still own the bank the same amount. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, there's trade offs there with like seniors living on fixed incomes who don't want to leave their house. But what do you think? I mean, on the whole,
1: is inflation actually a good thing for the median American's wealth? I think I think you spend an awful lot of time trying to offset the effect of inflation on on your on your life. In that situation, and I think if you go back and look at uh, the way people uh, responded to surveys and the way they voted in those years, uh, for a while, uh, Republicans uh, blamed the trade unions for inflation, and uh, the Democrats blamed the banks. But after a while, they were all—they were both blaming the government. And it was it had it was harder and harder to uh, uh, work through your own financial situation with with inflation in in double digits. And by the time it came to an end, uh, at the as the Carter administration was uh, winding down, you were seeing uh, mortgage rates, thirty-year fixed mortgage rates at eighteen uh, percent, and. Nobody in a position to do that. I remember a conversation I had with an executive, one of the major lumber producers in the country, uh, and he was pounding on the table and saying, if we can just get the mortgage rate down to 15%, we can sell some houses.
3: Wow. Inflation is extremely distortionary. It's very bad for the economy. It's yeah. asset theft. Basically, the Federal Reserve by allowing inflation to increase, is taking assets from Americans. And some people are suggesting that inflation be allowed to rise to make it easier to pay down uh, the value of the US debt. Uh, This is not something that a responsible government or Mm -hmm. a Federal Reserve uh, should be doing. It's terrible Mm -hmm. for the economy, terrible for incentives, results in a lot of distortions. What What
0: would you say the ideal inflation rate is?
3: Well, I would say it's zero, but the Fed errs on 2% to make sure that we don't have disinflation. Mm-hmm. So I would say the ideal is zero, but the Fed target rate no. is two, to make sure we don't have disinflation, which is even worse.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's exactly, uh, exactly right. What's the ideal interest rate level? Whatever whatever clears the market, frankly.
3: And it's different for different assets. So, for example, risky assets have a higher level, and uh,
1: mm-hmm.
3: there's different interest rates depending on the level of risk throughout the economy that you can observe.
1: If you try to borrow money against your stamp collection, you will pay a rather high rate of interest. Uh, if you aren't simply thrown out of the, the, the bank when, when you uh, when you raise the possibility,
3: there's no one interest
1: rate. We open it up to questions here uh, in the back. There.
6: Thank you, Irv Chapman from Bloomberg. Um, parenthetically, a lot of the uh, mortgage lending is. Uh, over the internet now and not from Wells Fargo and, and Chase. Uh, but looking at the uh, photograph of a, a, a housing tract, uh, from what you now know of Trump economics and congressional Republican economics, what do you think is the uh, near-term result going to be for the home building industry, the home improvement industry, and, and
1: uh, those lumber yards? Well, we seem to be more optimistic, which is probably uh, good for the housing market, uh, but uh, I don't quite know where the new administration's economy, economic planning, is going. Uh, I'm not awfully persu- enamored of the idea of uh, uh, having a wall between us and Mexico. I think that will hurt us, many of us. Uh, at least as badly as it will hurt uh, many Americans. Even though some of us, and we, you know, when the problem is, you can probably name the people who will benefit from a wall between us and Mexico on both sides, whereas the people who are hurt may not. It may not be as obvious uh, to them. So I, I think, I think I don't know where that how that uh, economic policy is going, and it's hard enough to predict the economy when you know where the economic policy is going. Come back next year.
3: Oh, I can forecast the past, but the future I have more trouble with, so I'm going to pass on that question. But Hillel had a question. One, one forward.
7: Um, thank you both very much. Um, I, I wanted to ask two questions. One uh, to either of you, but probably John since he's been looking at the data uh, most closely. Um, does the survey um capture uh people's uh the change in their position in uh, their relative position of households. So this is, say is does it give you any information about how people move up or for that matter down uh the relative scale over time? Um and the second question uh, uh I'm not sure how to frame it, but um In years past, one issue that was not, I think, uh, so prominent but was mentioned by Diana was student debt. Uh, I'm wondering how serious a problem you think that is going forward because it it, um, and how strange it may be for us going forward since it has risen to or seems to have risen to very, very uh, spectacular levels.
1: Uh, On the first question. Uh, I probably should have said this earlier. The uh, survey is not a panel survey. They don't go back to the same households every three years. And certainly if they were doing that to the richest people in the society, there would not be much of a survey. And so what you have to say is people who are like the people three years ago, how well are they doing? And there's some error in there because it's a different sample. But it's still, I think, uh, uh, a useful Uh, a useful thing to, uh, a useful way to proceed. Um, Your second question, oh yes, student debt. It's gone up. Diana has the numbers.
3: Yeah, 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 exactly. So if you look at page 74 of the paper that you have in front of you, table 6.9, the average age has gone up steadily. Now the average uh, age of all households with student debt is 36, uh, up from 32 in 1992. Uh, The share of all households with student debt is 29% vis-a-vis 21% in 1989, 18% in 1992. So it seems to have gone up under all different kinds of measures.
1: The uh, daughter of a friend of ours, uh, she went to graduate school, uh, uh, came back and was saying to her parents, I think I'm the only person in the class who is not here on a student loan.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, table, is, table
1: six point eight. It was also. not quite women's studies, but it wasn't necessary. It wasn't one of the markets uh, skills for which there's great demand.
3: Right, so. right, and, and also the percent of households with student debt. Table six point eight on seventy-two. Nineteen uh, percent of households now have student debt, up from uh, about nine percent in 1989, and uh, the number is 24. Million, the amount of debt outstanding, the total is 710 billion. Yeah,
0: it is striking, isn't it? How the uh, as student, as it becomes easier and easier for students to borrow money, the colleges' prices seem to somehow keep going up. Yes, well, of course, kind of, insane, of, course. Kind of in the same manner. Of
3: course, yes. as I mean, colleges, as If it's almost not a coincidence. Well, <laughs> but, yeah, of course, it's not. Almost. a coincidence. I mean, yeah. as they can borrow, then then the colleges raise their amounts. I mean, you Absolutely. can see it
0: even at not 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 to be a
3: mm.
0: not to be a commercial for a particular institution, but the. You can see where I, Hillsdale College, which doesn't have uh, use the federal student loans at all, I believe, uh, uh, actually has prices now that are below in-state prices for uh, the University of California system. Um, let's uh, move over to the side of the room. Yes, lady in the
2: front here. This has been very interesting, and I want to say I want to congratulate the Hudson Institute because I think you're the only think tank that I'm aware of in town that talks about these ins- these issues of poverty and those that have been left behind. So thank you very much. Um, I have a number of questions. First of all, can we get copies of your PowerPoints?
1: Um, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about that, but
2: no, I I would appreciate that. Okay. Um, I I find, I never studied economics, I studied social anthropology, so I'm interested in the whole society, not just one particular part. I wish you could write these stories so the general public could understand them. I wish you would get your students to write them so the general public, the one thing that was clear to me about this election was how uninformed the voters are when the post says that the public doesn't realize that we have th- three-quarters of the...
3: This is John's Forbes article. It's okay. written so everyone can understand Okay. It.
2: Well, but it needs to be spread about in a way that, you know, my plumber can understand it, or the people who clean up my backyard. I mean, I, they vote too, and they... Anyway, I'm, I'm, I think that there are things where you talk about the median and the average, Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the average, the wealthy look much better than they, yes, they do. I mean it's just it's not good information for us to understand it. And I it would be really wonderful if you could figure out a way across the universities. I mean the academics write for each other.
1: Academics what? Pardon?
2: Academics write for each other. You write in code. Sure. And well relatively well-educated, interested people get lost in a lot of this. It's not that it's been published, it's just it's not written in a term that we can get it.
1: Thank you. You, you write for your colleagues, so they will give you tenure.
2: <laughs> yeah, and then you keep teaching what you learned back in the 60s, and the world has changed.
5: Let's get the gentleman in the back back there with the hat. <laughs> My name is Yaya Fanoussi, and... Let me pose
1: some of the questions I posed to my professors when I was a student. You mentioned that the wall, the wall that Trump is talking about, you didn't like it.
3: Your response was, you gave some response. Is that based on your ideology or is it factual analysis that got you to make that interpretation?
1: We've had experience with trying to uh, stimulate our economy with tariffs. Uh, we had it in the 1930s. The Hawley-Smoot tariff enacted in 1930 uh, closed uh, a lot of people out of our markets and caused them to, a lot of them to cut us out of their markets. And we didn't really, nobody, nobody really benefited for that after, from that after a short uh, period of time. I think it's based on uh what i know as an economist in terms of economic theory and what i've seen as an economist looking at what goes on around the uh, country the free trade agreement the world the, the free trade agreement that we've had with canada and mexico has been clearly beneficial to all three of us i think there are certainly people in all three countries who are less well off uh than they were before the agreement because they were producing whatever it was at a higher cost in their country than people in the other, t- any one of the other two countries could do. I think when you have that, uh, you need a, a serious policy for helping people whose jobs are disappearing to be able to get other jobs, the skills they need for other jobs where they can make uh, a good living without. The fear that the day after tomorrow somebody's uh, going to undercut them. Now, job programs are much more Diana. Job training is much more Diana's territory than mine. Uh, My sense is that uh, they've never been uh, well executed in this country. But
3: right, exactly. Now, I I would agree with John that they have never been well executed. And a strong economy, uh, a growing economy, provides more opportunities than all the job training programs uh, can do. I would say that I'm certainly in favor of more border security, uh, very possibly a wall, but also uh, more legal immigration and certainly more trade. I don't see uh, a wall as... uh, necessarily stopping trade or stopping uh, legal immigration. We need more legal immigration, we need it to be simpler, but that doesn't mean that we can uh, we cannot also have a wall because there are Hamas, Hezbollah, ISIS camps in Mexico. There are people who want to walk over the border and do us harm. We want to keep out those people. We want to also let in people who want to come here and work. Uh, so uh, I don't see the two as necessarily contradictory.
0: I always like to cite the stat that the uh the percentage of people living in America now who are immigrants is almost the all-time high-water mark, whether it's legal or or illegal. That that number has surpassed, the percentage of Americans who are are immigrants has now surpassed the number in 1880 or 1920 in these high-water marks of of immigration. Um, It's up almost threefold since 1970. Um, The the all-time high-water mark is still, I believe, 1890. It's predicted to be surpassed in another two or three years. So uh, I'm more sympathetic to the wall, but let me... Well,
3: uh, one reason that that there here. are so many, just following up on your comment, one reason that there are many, many foreign workers here is that they don't. They believe that if they leave, they will not be able to get back in uh, legally, so they stay. There are many people who would like to work on a seasonal basis, go back home to their countries uh, and then return. Uh, but since it's so difficult to get in and out, uh, then they don't do that. So that is a big problem. We need to make it as easy uh, as getting a driver's license. Yeah, Paul
6: London. Thank you, Paul London. Um, I was interested in, you know, there there are revenues or income, mm-hmm. and then there are assets. Mm-hmm. I would think that most of the people who are asked about this survey, when they're thinking, why is the government asking me this? They're thinking about what I'm going to do when I retire. And they think that one of their assets or income sources is Social Security, and they have Medicare. So it seems to me that in one of those tables, or maybe both, uh, the fact that they have Social Security and Medicare uh, ought to figure in. I mean, I know when I talk to people who uh, work for us on an occasional basis, they're thinking about their social security income. How are they going to get thirteen thousand or twenty thousand? And they know that at sixty-five they get Medicare.
1: Yes, and that's that's a that's a very good question. And <clears throat> the answer is, when the Fed started this survey in 1983, they asked about your social security, and since it's a wealth survey, they were asking you, what do you think the present value is of the social security you will receive when you retire? Now, try answering that one uh, at age 30 or 35.
3: Or even 60.
1: Or even 60, or after you've retired, how many more years are you going to live? And what discount rate are you gonna use for the social security, get back into present value? And after that, they gave up. They, the answers were not very uh, coherent. Uh, but for what it was worth, insofar as they could measure it, and they, they made lots of disclaimers about the accuracy of it, even as they were publishing them, it was true that when you took Social Security into account as best they could, you had a somewhat more equal distribution of wealth. But they never wanted to ask those questions again. It's just impossible to do to get something from their standpoint, and they make a living doing this, just impossible uh, to get answers that you consider really uh, trustworthy for a full cross-section of the population.
0: And just to be clear on that, John, so, but that wouldn't affect the, uh, the relative wealth inequality from, say, 1989 to 2013, right? Because the same methodology is being used
1: uh, from 1989 onward. Well you you'd have you'd have a different uh, uh, present value of your social security depending on how old you are, uh, which is going to make a difference in the in the uh, distribution of of wealth and it, and certainly the the uh, social security that you can expect to get is going to make a difference in your estimate of what your income will be when you hit sixty five or sixty seven uh, and whenever it is you actually. Uh, Retire. I think. It, I think if, you, if we could do it, we would have a more positive picture of how we are. Yeah. But I think. Uh, I, I think it would be a very difficult uh, uh, thing to do. And people have problems with the question. Okay, do I retire now at sixty-five years and six months, or do I retire in two years, or do I draw my Social Security now, or do, even if it's discounted a bit? And, it's not
0: going to. It's not going to change the major finding of wealth going from whatever it is, 140,000 for the median American in 2007 to
6: 87,000.
1: Yeah, 50, 000, thousand. yeah. yeah it's, that's right. It should not make much of a difference there, but it is going to change the picture. <clears throat> and at least from the 1983 survey, it's reasonably clear that it makes a difference in the degree of inequality. It doesn't turn things on, the, on their head, but it makes a difference.
0: Gentleman on the aisle here, I think, and we'll go to the gentleman in the front.
5: Thank you. Uh, Jerry Hyman. I was wondering if I could ask two questions. One is um, on assets. You didn't take into account inheritance. And I realize that uh-huh. in the median, in, in, the, in the middle class, that's not going to be as anywhere near as much as in the, up, at the upper end of the spectrum. But there is some, especially in uh-huh. housing stock and so on and so forth. Assuming for a moment that your parents don't need to sell their home and eat up those assets in their old age. To what extent is inheritance a factor in how you think of the future and how you think of your assets? That's the first question. And the second is, since if you're young, income is an important ingredient oh, yes. in those, in those calculations that you talked about, because you have, right, um your car and your income. To what extent is the larger economy and the switch from the robotics, the technology, et cetera, et cetera, to what extent does that affect, in your view, your, Perception of your future income and your assets as they as they either grow or don't grow, given that you potentially don't have a job in the lower part of the uh, income scale, and/or even in the middle part, which is which is the Trump right? That's part of where the Trump phenomenon has has come from: is people feeling that they're not they don't have they don't have a future, and their kids don't have a future. I think with respect to uh, inheritance, uh, what
1: you can expect to inherit is already showing up in the net worth of the people who have it now, your parents, your, your other relatives. And uh, you yourself may certainly want to take that into account. But you don't want to start counting that, those assets as belonging to two different families. It, it, it's just that you're, 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 uh, uh, you're, you're going to get a, a, a confused picture of what we have. It
5: was the right 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 direction wrong
1: direction
5: that's
1: yeah you, you might yeah it might if you if you uh, suddenly expect that you're going to get a substantial bequest from from your long-lost uncle who you never heard of uh, that's likely to change your view of right direction or on track and or at least your sense of how well off you are you are at this point but it's uh, it's it's a. It's you. You want You. you shouldn't be counting it uh, twice in in a in an attempt to count, to uh, calculate total wealth or the distribution of wealth. That's.
0: Am, am I correct? Am I correct in saying that the survey is trying to capture wealth at this moment yes. in time? Yes. Not. Not what you. Today's survey. Expect you will be. Yes. Having, right.
6: Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I to think To the
3: that's, extent uh, mm-hmm. that. Um, People with low incomes might uh, come from low-income families and also expect smaller inheritances. It might not change the total picture. Mm-hmm.
0: I don't think there's any question that people who think they're going to be replaced by a robot, whether or not they are,
1: it's going to affect their feeling about whether things are on the right course. I think it's also agree. going to. Excuse me. I think it's also going to going to uh, uh, affect what you what you do, uh, what your best judgment is of what. Uh, is going to happen to you because of robots or what, or drones or whatever it may be. Uh, I think it increases your sense of uncertainty as to where you are. And, uh, if you can, you would probably be <clears throat> saving more to be protected against that uncertainty. And if you can't, uh, you're going to have a less enjoyable life until you can sort things out. I think that's clear. On
3: the other hand, uh, we have seen increasing technology, and increasing technology over our economic history has been accompanied by higher wages and higher productivity. Uh, There were the Luddites who were concerned about the farm equipment. Uh, We are now making enough agricultural produce to feed the whole world, with only 2% of people working on agriculture. People have always been concerned that technology is going to destroy their jobs, but we have high levels of technology accompanied by High levels of employment, and rising wages. And I expect that to continue uh, with the new technology, the new robotic technology. So I would say these fears are, in a sense, misplaced. But we do need to focus more on educational levels, getting rid of these schools where there's a 55% graduation rate, training people to uh, be able to work in the new economy. First,
4: Mr. Wright, thank you. Well, again, uh, Robert Sherratt is my name uh, with International Investor. Specifically, uh, one one uh, informational point: Do I do I understand that over this thirty-year period, we're looking at inflation-adjusted figures yes. when we measure yes. wealth? Okay, and um, brings me to uh, my quick question for Ms. Uh, Fershgott Roth. Uh, some of your recommendations uh, seem like they would. Um, exacerbate some of this inequity and wealth issue, specifically if we were to do away with the lending agencies for mortgages, which actually spread risk among a whole group of investors, it would become more difficult for people to get mortgages, for average middle class people to get mortgages. Banks would be inclined to raise interest rates if they could on those mortgages. Same thing with student loans. If we were to put that all into the uh, the purview of bankers to decide which degrees were worthy, which grades were worthy. I can tell you many of us who became entrepreneurs would have been without the, uh, the possibility of receiving finance. So, um, I, again, are you sure that some of these recommendations would really be best for the uh, equality that we're all at least uh, aspiring to get a little closer to?
3: The problem uh, with these uh, mortgage loans and the value of houses is it kind of uh, moves with the business cycle. So when there's a recession, uh, homes are hit and we get higher amounts of defaults. What I was proposing is using the funds that we are spending on subsidized lending and putting it into other forms, such as help with down payments the way Australia does. Uh, and that would give people help, but in another way if we decide that we really do want to subsidize home ownership and we want to encourage it. Helping with the down payment is better uh, than doing what we are doing in terms of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, where we are encouraging risk taking. And these people who lost their homes and who are unable to move to get a better job because their homes are under water, they are probably not thanking the government that put these uh, policies into place now. As far as student loans go, yes, it would make it more difficult to get a student loan. But there are many families, as can be seen uh, in uh, this report, who are struggling under the burden of student loan debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my book, Disinherited, How Washington is Betraying America's Young, we interviewed uh, young people who said, if I'd known how much debt I was going to get and how hard it would be to get a job afterwards, I would not have taken on all this debt. Of course, one solution, if we have a growing economy, then it's possible to get a job, a better job, and pay off the debt. But if you have a situation where you have high levels of debt and a slow-growing economy so you can get a job to pay it off, this is very, very serious for a young person, and they might wish they would not be in this situation. And there are other ways that they can get an education, such as going to a community college, which costs $3,000 on average a year, where you can graduate in two years, and a high-return degree in one of the healthcare professions or one of the computer professions and uh, gets a job earning $45,000 afterwards with practically no debt. So there are alternatives.
0: With an associate's degree you're talking
3: Associate about? Associate
0: degree, yeah. I think the gentleman in the aisle had a, did you have a question, sir? Oh, OK, I thought somebody did. Any other questions?
2: All right, well, I think we're out of time anyway. Thank you very much for coming.